friend of um, uh, Dr. Lucia Shonskoska Cannon, who actually went to school with me. Her PhD is from Columbia. A little bit earlier, who, who had a great father, too. We should have a separate session if I force her finally to write anything down. <laughs> yeah. He was uh, a, a fighter and a political prisoner after the war, during and after the war. But now we have Mr. Adam Szymiński, who will introduce himself differently because he always mispronounces his name. <laughs> his name is of the U.S. Energy Information Administration. And uh, he uh, knows everything there is to know about energy. He also worked in the private sector, for instance, for Deutsche Bank. Bless you, He also worked for something called the National Petroleum Council, which is an advisory uh, group to the Secretary of Energy. Well, not surprisingly, uh, when we have asked Mr. Szymiński to uh, <laughs> come talk to us, he said, can I talk about energy? <laughs> if you must. I'll say he something said, about Poland, too. Well, okay, he said something about Poland, because <laughs> Poland needs energy. Well, when we run out of um, carbohydrates, Poland's <laughs> just fine with coal, so it won't get cold in Poland. Anyway, Very please good. welcome our speaker. Thank you. So, just to use the, the down key. Thank you very much, Marek. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Forward with the arrow Right. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here, uh, the Institute of World Politics, but more importantly, the Kosciuszko Chair Conference. I might be able to find a, uh, a picture that I brought with me at the end of my presentation of uh, me putting an American flag on top of the flowers at Kosciuszko's tomb in Krakow a few years ago, it was July 4th, and I thought that since Thomas Jefferson made Kosciuszko an American citizen, he deserved to have an American flag on the 4th of July. So I had it hidden in my jacket. I went in, I, I was not arrested, I'm delighted to say. <laughs> I think that if I had been seen putting the American flag there, I probably uh, would have been uh, perfectly accepted. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, what I want to talk about today is, is the energy outlook for the world, including some of the things that are going on in Poland. And, uh, but before I do that, I just want to have two slides to tell you about the agency that I run. It's called the U.S. Energy Information Administration. We are one of the 14 major federal statistical organizations uh, in Washington. Most of the major cabinet agencies uh, have a statistical branch. Now there's transportation statistics, health statistics. Uh, at the Department of Justice, they actually have crime statistics. So at Energy, we have energy statistics and we're responsible. EIA, my organization, uh, by law, uh, 
no other policy group in Washington can review our, inf our data, our analysis, and our uh, reports go out uh, even without review by the Secretary of Energy. They don't go to the Congress, to the Energy Committees, they don't go to the White House. That's a bit different than many of the other uh, parts of uh, cabinet agencies. So we're the official source of information. We don't take the policy stances, we try to stay out of the policy arena, uh, but we like to comment on things that matter to policymakers. So we do lots of reports, and here's an example of weekly uh, reports on natural gas storage and, and things like gasoline supply and demand balances, uh, many monthly reports on energy, um, natural gas, drilling productivity, and a number of other things, and two big annual reports, one on the international energy outlook and one on the U.S. energy outlook. Uh, we're also the first agency anywhere in the world to be collecting data on an hourly basis. Uh, we're looking at the generation of electricity across the United States, and we're sweeping it from uh, a number of the what they call balancing authorities, these big groups that make sure the grid operates correctly. Uh, and uh, we're the first statistical agency anywhere in the world uh, to collect things on an hourly basis. So we've gone way beyond mailing out paper forms for people to fill out and send them back in. That's what was happening in the 1970s to uh, bringing things in on an electronic basis. We have lots of people that use our site, private citizens, businesses, the energy sector itself, the financial markets, um, uh, schools, uh, government itself, and the media. Uh, millions and millions of hits uh, on our website, uh, and uh, I'm very proud of, of what we're doing uh, electronically. Uh, we were the first agency in Washington to uh, actually have a website. Uh, we're now the first agency to have a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, and a Twitter account. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're keeping up with the millennials. Let me talk a little bit about Poland's energy situation. Um, Poland's primary energy consumption is about four quadrillion BTUs. Just to put that into perspective, the U.S. consumes about 100. So uh, four uh, Qs is a fairly big number. Um, coal accounts for about half of domestic consumption. Uh, oil and natural gas uh, split the rest. There's a little bit of renewables. Uh, the Polish government actually has a target to raise that renewables number to something like 15%. Uh, but coal is still extremely important in Poland. Uh, 150 million short tons of coal. It's 22% of the coal production in Europe. Poland's the largest uh, coal producer in Europe behind Germany. Um, the electricity sector in Poland is very uh, reliant on coal uh, for uh, creating electricity, about 75% of installed capacity. Again, to kind of compare that to the United States, Ten years ago, about half of the electricity in the United States was generated with coal, and that number is now down to about one-third. The reason is, is that we're using a lot more natural gas uh, to generate electricity and increasingly uh, more renewables like uh, wind and solar. Uh, the uh, potential uh, to, uh, to use other sources of energy in Poland besides coal is, is improving. 
Poland's largest source of crude oil. It's about a half a million barrels a day. I'm going to keep comparing to the United States. The U.S. consumes about 20 million barrels a day. So about half a million barrels a day is a pretty big number. Uh, there are two big refineries in Poland. Uh, most of that oil uh, in Poland is coming from uh, Russia uh, through the Druzhba pipeline. Friendship, I think, is what that might mean in, in Russia. And whether it's friendly or not, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Mark might have, have, a, have an, he might have an opinion on that. There are uh, other sources of oil now uh, coming in, in Poland, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq. Uh, interestingly, the United States now has uh, no laws that constrain the export of crude oil. We don't have any laws that constrain the export of natural gas. This is something new for the United States. So it's possible that Poland could even get crude oil from the United States. Uh, whether that would be economic or not, I think, would depend on a lot of things. Poland's natural gas supply, uh, again, most of that, is, there is some domestic production. That's the blue bars down at the bottom. The, the, uh, the yellow gold color is pipeline imports, and that's coming from Russia. I know that uh, Poland uh, uh, took a stand against one of the new big pipelines that the Russians were talking about building uh, into Europe. Uh, there, uh, Poland being on the, the uh, western side uh, of the Ukraine, is, there's all the, the big pipelines come through that way through Poland, and there's lots of interesting security questions associated with that. Uh, later on, if you want to look at this, you can. You can see some of the statistics uh, about, um, about Poland's rank in the uh, global markets. Uh, the biggest thing is its, its reserves and consumption of coal. Uh, interestingly, and I, it's not on this uh, list, but uh, Poland uses a lot of propane fuel. So that's the tank that's under your barbecue here in the United States. But in Poland, it's being used in the transportation area. So there are a lot of uh, LPG uh, uh, cars and trucks in Poland, and it's one of the world's ranking leaders in that area. Now I want to talk a little bit about the world and a little bit about the United States, and I'm going to go through these very quickly, and I hope you might have some questions for me. I'd rather get into a dialogue with you than, than look at these. This is the world picture for the supply and demand of crude oil. Everybody the main thing that everybody in America wants to know about, it seems, and it's the biggest thing that we get on our website, is what's the price of gasoline, right? And the price of gasoline depends on mainly on the price of crude oil. The price of crude oil depends on what the supply and demand balance is. And what you see here, in that blue line is all the way through the end of 2014 and 2015, supply was exceeding consumption inventories, those green bars, were building, and that was putting downward pressure on oil prices. That's why oil prices fell from over $100 a barrel uh, in the middle of 2014 to well below $50 a barrel uh, in, uh, in the, the end of 2015 and earlier this year. Prices have recovered a little bit, and we're now trading around $45 a barrel or so for something called the Brent uh, benchmark price. Uh, that uh, analysts use to uh, try to, to um, capture in one number what the price of oil is. We don't see at EIA these supply and demand numbers balancing until about the second quarter of next year. 
That's the point that we would expect prices to begin to firm up. Inventories are very high, so even if we had a problem somewhere uh, in one of the supplying countries around the world, uh, there's a lot of inventory to draw on, uh, but things could tighten up. And just as an example, the political situation in Venezuela is a complete mess. Venezuela uh, exports a couple of million, two million barrels a day into the world markets, and if that production should be lost, uh, it could create uh, a pretty big move in prices around the world. So I want to just show you um, uh, something. EIA says that the price of oil will average about 51 or 52 dollars next year. So we have what we call point forecasts. Uh, but what this graph shows, and the one on the right-hand side is for oil, uh, is that the range, the possible range in prices is very high. We use a very sophisticated uh, algorithm uh, called Black-Scholes that was originally used in the financial markets uh, to try to look at what the volatility is of pricing. And there's an advantage in using Black-Scholes because it just uses market information. It uses the price in the futures and options market to determine volatility and then turns that into a range of prices. So the, it's not, it, it is based on data that's very, very easily available. What the Black-Scholes algorithm says, uh, with a 95% confidence level, that's pretty good, 95% confidence level, that oil be, will be somewhere between $30 a barrel and $100 a barrel. <laughs> so you say, what use is something that predicts that? And the answer is, what that's telling you is nobody knows what the price of oil is going to be. Uh, nobody knows what the weather is going to be uh, when the Kosciuszko chair is having its annual meeting. Uh, it seems to be uh, associated with sunshine that keeps those people outside, Marek, but let's not worry about it. Um, let me just show you this graph that relates per capita income growth and population growth to energy. Uh, what we uh, see is demand for energy still climbing very sharply, driven by population income growth in places like Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Not so much in the United States and Europe, uh, but in these growing economies, energy demand uh, is still picking up very strongly. So we see demand for oil continuing to rise. We see demand for coal flattening, natural gas rising even faster than oil. Renewables growing the fastest. That's the green line, but from a base which is very low. So even though renewables grows very fast, it's still not enough to supply all of the world's demand uh, for energy. Uh, we also see nuclear growing, and that's mostly in China. Uh, one of the things that that um, that energy is going to be used for. So if you go back and look at you know where is most of that going, more than half of the world's energy is going into industrial uses. So that's back to this income growth. As income grows, people want cars, they want refrigerators, they want air conditioners, they want big screen TVs. And all of that needs uh, oil, gas, and and electricity, and it's you know many fuels uh, to drive it. I'm going to skip through that. I just want to show you that as time goes by, we see OPEC's role in the oil markets becoming more powerful. 
Right now, OPEC is struggling to try to do anything about prices. Uh, but as we move out into the next decade, demand for OPEC crude oil will begin to grow. And again, that uh, could tighten up oil prices. Uh, one of the other things that I just wanted to, to show very quickly here is the growth over the next few years in something called liquefied natural gas. So if you take natural gas and chill it, uh, it turns into a liquid. It's easy to put that into a ship, into a tanker. It's like a big thermos bottle to keep the, the liquid cold. And you can move that overseas. And the United States is now beginning to be an exporter of liquefied natural gas. Countries like Malaysia and Australia have been doing it for some time. Over the next few years, we see a lot of uh, growth in the capacity to manufacture liquefied natural gas uh, in the United States, in Australia, uh, Indonesia, and a few other countries. That'll probably keep those markets oversupplied. The reason I bring this up is the potential uh, for using the LNG import facility that was just completed in Poland to purchase U.S. supplied natural gas uh, is now a reality. Uh, it could happen. Uh, the first shipment of LNG into Poland, uh, into that uh, facility, uh, came from Gutter, Qatar, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, but it's uh, certainly possible that the United States could become a supplier to Poland of natural gas. Uh, just a quick point about the uh, global electricity markets and one of the interesting aspects of this. I mentioned that 75% of the electricity in Poland is coming from coal. A very big proportion of electricity in China also comes from coal. Uh, China is the world's largest uh, coal producer and consumer. Uh, way exceeding what even the United States does. Uh, so these numbers for coal in China are just huge, and what the Chinese government's plans are uh, for its coal industry is something that will make a really big difference uh, to things like air quality uh, in uh, Beijing and elsewhere in China. Uh, I was just there uh, last week. Uh, the first day of my meetings in Beijing, uh, there were health warnings. Everybody, please stay inside. Um, people were going uh, in the street with ma wearing masks. Uh, the people in uh, China, I think, are, uh, are particularly interested in finding ways for China to clean up uh, the air pollution problems that they have, and reducing coal consumption is going to be one of those. Uh, we see a lot of growth coming uh, in things like natural gas, hydropower, other renewables, wind, solar, and so on, and even nuclear power. Uh, we don't see coal growing very much uh, globally and not in China either. Uh, and uh, this uh, growth in cleaner fuels is something that I think will even continue under uh, a Trump administration. The, uh, the need uh, for uh, dealing with uh, air pollution problems uh, is, uh, is something that most people understand and believe, even if there are doubts about uh, climate issues. Uh, that's actually the end of this presentation. Uh, these are some of the places that you can go on the, the web uh, and find uh, EIA's uh, uh, data. So I'm going to do something really quick here, see if I can make this work. Oh, I might need some help.
I want to go to this. Let's, can you bring up the file? Which file? Uh, go back to this USB key. So just use the file. It's not a PowerPoint, so we're going to just escape from PowerPoint, minimize that. Let's, let's get rid of that. There we go. All right. Okay, so now the key. It's here. It's open. Right. All right, here's my uh, travel log that I promised you. How do I bring that up? You want to bring it up for me? Yes. Oh, we just lost the connection into the. Ah, you know what? It doesn't matter. <coughs> Can you show that on the screen? Display it. There we go. There's me. My grandparents' hometown. Noe Schuntz. I used to call it Noe Sachs, but somebody told me that my Polish pronunciation wasn't very good, Marek, on that. And then the next one that I wanna wanna show you. We forgive you. Yeah. That's uh, Kosciuszko's tomb at the castle in, in Krakow. And it's hard to see, but that's the American flag I planted in the flowers. <laughs> OK. Questions? Complaints? <laughs> Thank you for this uh, whistle-stop tour of um, energy. And we'll keep you on time, too. Challenges and uh, possibilities. I usually make comments. Well, my comment was Poland has coal. Poland shouldn't worry about anything, uh, except Brussels. Because Brussels moans and complains. <laughs> when it gets cold or uh, car carbohydrates run out, then the Poles will just use coal. Uh, make no doubt about it. That was just my comment. As is customary, do you have any questions? Mr. S. Madam. Um, yes. Uh, you, you mentioned that you use the power grid to generate data, and then you collect. Can you explain how the smart meter meters play a role? Right. So smart meters and what's the role there, what's happening with the grid. So there's a really interesting study that's underway at the Department of Energy, not by my agency, but by the Office of Policy. Uh, it's called the Quadrennial Energy Review, QER. Uh, and uh, Melanie Kenderdine is uh, running this study. It's looking at the electricity grid in the United States uh, and addressing issues like this. So what EIA is doing is we are collecting data on how much electricity is being produced on an hourly basis, and we're showing that about an hour and a half after the conclusion. So right now, if you were to go on our website, you'd be able to see how much electricity was used between 11 o'clock and noon uh, today, and in another few minutes, about 20 minutes after uh, 2, you'd be able to see how much was used between noon and 1 o'clock. So what we can now show is the hourly pattern of electricity generation and demand across the United States. Uh, we are going to ask the Office of Management and Budget for permission 
uh, to further expand uh, this survey that we're doing to include all of the fuels so that we can see how much coal, nuclear, natural gas, and renewables and so on is contributing to the generation of electricity. Um, the smart meters uh, and smart grid uh, is a, a term that's, uh, that's being used uh, to try to understand better what's actually happening at, to the electricity as it flows across the grid and smart meters at your home. So a smart meter in your home, rather than just recording how much electricity you're using, it, it might be able to do the same thing. Uh, look at your patterns over the course of the day, uh, understand how much electricity is being used for different devices in your home, and relay that information back to the utility so that they can manage uh, how the, the grid is being used. Uh, meters on the, the big grid rather than at your house uh, are, in a sense, being used in the same way to try to understand uh, where the electricity is going, how, um, how it's uh, being used, and whether or not there would be ways to improve the uh, efficiency of how the, the grid works. Uh, so one of the things uh, uh, America was saying, you know, Poland has a lot of coal and is still going to use coal to generate electricity. Well, there are lots of things that you can do to clean coal up. Uh, you can capture the stack gases, you can remove the sulfur, you can even sometimes do something about the nitrogen oxides. In the United States, coal consumption has been falling, and a lot of that has, hasn't really had anything to do with climate issues. It's had to do with uh, things like getting sulfur dioxide out of the air. That's kind of the smelly, you know, kind of rotten egg smell that you have sometimes, uh, uh, I remember from my uh, boyhood in, in central Pennsylvania in the coal regions, getting the sulfur out improves health. Getting particulate matter out improves um, health. Uh, one of the things that is underway right now are some regulations on uh, heavy metals like mercury, which uh, are contained in the coal in coal and are released when coal is burned, and there are ways to remove uh, metals like mercury from, from coal. Uh, and, and those things are really all designed uh, to improve public health. It doesn't have uh, anything to do. Now, there are uh, many people who believe that, that uh, fossil fuels uh, like coal, oil, and natural gas are emitting too much carbon dioxide, that that's leading to some serious issues. Uh, relative to uh, temperature and climate. Um, but there are uh, other reasons for looking at, at coal. Um, back to your question, and I'm going to stop, and, and I think there was another one. Uh, smart meters might actually be able to figure out a way to, to improve the efficiency of consumption in your home. It's, it's, uh, uh, to, it, it would lead to information that would allow you to make some judgments about when to use uh, electricity. Uh, and the, uh, the same thing is true with a grid. So some people say that the best form of energy is the energy that you don't use. Uh, more efficient cars, you know, better mileage from your car, or air conditioners that, that can give you all of the cold air that you want on a hot day in Washington, but do it with 
less electricity needed. Uh, this is something that Saudi Arabia has been working on. As you might imagine, out in the middle of Saudi Arabia, it's very hot. Everybody has air conditioners. Electricity is pretty cheap, so they use those, but they're trying to find ways to improve the efficiency of the air conditioners that they're buying and installing so that they use less electricity. In the Saudis' case, they use oil to generate their electricity. Uh, and if they can save the oil, they can export that to China so that the Chinese can use the oil to, to drive their cars and trucks, as an example. I think there was another question here. But you should go on the, the DOE website and look at the Quadrennial Energy Review. Yes, sir. Friendly, you said you don't, uh, your uh, administration doesn't get into the uh, policy side of things. But just a, a couple questions that maybe you can give us some insight on. Uh, with Poland in particular, and then maybe the rest of Europe, particularly like Lithuania, uh, trying to go to the, uh, the LNG ports. Right. Um, you see that that would affect Russia in any way and how they view their kind of near abroad energy markets? And then you were talking, uh, one of the charts talked about India was going to be really one of the only places where coal use is going to go up. Right, in that graph. Mm -hmm. and you, you had mentioned that uh, uh, coal use as well as other forms to, of uh, uh, energy or overall energy production was going up because of industrial uses. Do you also see, looking out particularly in China and India, it's going to get beyond the industrial uses where it would be more towards kind of quality yeah. of life and consumer demand? Right. Okay. So the first question was for, for LNG. LNG, Europe, right, and in Europe. And is the possibility of U.S. LNG exports uh, having a role somehow globally? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Uh, that the availability of an alternative supply uh, at a reasonable price is something that uh, has uh, tended to lead to contract revisions in a lot of places in Asia and might also have uh, led to uh, competition uh, in Europe. Uh, around the world, uh, outside of the United States, gas in the United States kind of trades against itself. So that it, they call it gas on gas competition. It tends to keep prices at modest levels. Uh, the, uh, around the world, uh, natural gas tends to be priced with contracts tied to the oil price. So one of the things that happened when oil prices fell is natural gas prices fell as well. Uh, before that was happening, there were many people, before the oil price came down, the possibility that U.S. liquefied natural gas was going to be available, especially to Asian buyers, was something that was tending to put a cap on prices. Uh, I think that U.S. LNG could still put a cap on prices uh, in Europe and offer effective competition. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that those huge, huge Russian um, gas pipelines coming into Europe uh, can be very, very competitive, and the the uh, trying to compete uh, with very expensive LNG liquefaction and transportation against gigantic, uh, relatively cheap to build pipelines is something that that if I were in the LNG business, I wouldn't be counting on um, being able to 
penetrate the European markets against Russian gas. One of the things, interestingly, that's helped Russia uh, during the oil price decline is that the ruble fell faster than the dollar. And the costs of producing oil and gas in Russia tend to be in rubles. The revenue that they get for exporting into Europe tends to come in dollars. And the strength of the dollar against the ruble meant that even with the decline in oil and gas prices, the Russian government and producers were getting fairly decent um, revenue for their, their product. Uh, your second question was, I, I uh, didn't get my pen out to write it down. Yeah, coal. I had, I had the graph that showed coal demand rising in India. Uh, coming down in the United States with or without the thing that we call the Clean Power Plan that uh, President Obama wanted to put in price, place and, and uh, President-elect Trump has said he doesn't favor it. Um, it would make a difference with the Clean Power Plan. We would probably see a faster drop in coal consumption that in EIA's numbers coal use in the United States is going down because natural gas is very competitive and uh, renewables uh, are, are rising as well. So let's look at you know, where in the why uh, coal is going up in other places like uh, India. It's, it is a, as in Poland, it's a very attractive way of generating electricity. So everybody wants electricity, uh, and uh, and even moving away from industrial output towards a a, um, a service-oriented economy, as China is trying to do in their 13th um, five-year plan, uh, the uh, the need for electricity would still be going up. What was that comment, Merrick? I was just this, this, this is this particular. Stage is called net. <laughs> <laughs> the well, I, <laughs> right. They they're really interested. The word that they're using uh, all the time in China now is transition. Yes. A transition from India has got a long ways to go before they're going to be transitioning to a service-oriented economy. The Chinese are interested right. in coal as well. Uh, Chinese are very interested in coal. They're also, uh, because of the size of the country and the GDP, they've got very active research uh, going on uh, in ways to use shale. coal cleanly, uh, shale uh, production. By the way, EIA actually did a study uh, through a consultancy. Uh, we looked at the possibility of shale uh, in Poland uh, there's a lot of natural gas shale reserves, we believe, in Poland. We've reduced those a little bit in one of our reassessments, uh, but they're still very large. But a lot of the companies that were drilling in 2013 and 2014 had relatively disappointing results, and so the, the effort to, to uh, develop shale gas in Poland has, has pretty dramatically slowed down. Some of the companies say that the problem you know, there's two kinds of problems in looking for oil and natural gas. There's the geological problems, they call those the, the, the below ground issues, and then there's the above ground issues. And the above ground issues are also challenging in Poland. Poland was trying to design contracts that they didn't want to leave a lot of money on the table. And, and so they designed the contracts very tightly to make sure that the companies weren't 
you know, getting too much money from the deals that were being structured, and I think it actually slowed down the exploration process. Yes, sir. Uh, what's the energy situation in the Kaliningrad Oblast? Uh, do they have any production, say lignite, and what they import, where does it come from? Okay, so let me explain what I do, despite my name. Uh, and, and, and Merrick, it's very funny when I go to visit my sister, Mary uh, Sheminsky, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We get introduced as Mary Sheminsky and Adam Siminsky. <laughs> Although, uh, when, I, when I go to Europe, I find that when I check into hotels, that most people actually know how to pronounce my, my name the correct Polish way. I'm the CEO of EIA. We have a $122 million a year budget. We have 600 people working there. I spend most of my time um, uh, trying to get senior people hired and get rid of the dead wood, which is really, really hard thing to do in the federal government. I have no idea what the energy situation is in the Kaliningrad uh, Oblast. Maybe somebody here in the room does. Russia, because it's Russia. It would be against their own interests to pick up anything other than consumer goods and food, which they do in across-the-border trade from Poland, so. So does the energy come in by pipeline or by ship? Uh, by ship. Uh, and also, sometimes it's shipped by, uh, uh, sometimes it's shipped, if needs be, by train. There is some kind of a deal with Lithuania, a transit deal where um, uh, the Russians have to travel in sealed trains. So it's transit, I suppose, but the other way around is also applies. Krulevets, uh, or what they call now Kaliningrad Oblast, as, um, as an integral part of Russia. Uh, they wanted to be oriented towards Russia. Uh, incidentally, uh, both Kaliningrad and Vladivostok Oblast tend tend, have tended to be the most outward looking because they are on the extremes. So the first serious anti Putin riots occurred both in. Uh, Königsberg, Kaliningrad, Kulevitz, and in Vladivostok because those people have business in Japan and in Poland. And once Putin began tightening the noose, there were rebellions in the periphery. They had to rush riot police from Moscow to Vladivostok. That's how bad it got. They were bringing a lot of stuff from Japan. It's about free trade. These, uh things called LPGs, liquefied petroleum, it's not LNG, not liquefied natural gas, LPG is like propane. And that, uh, that comes by train, a lot of it comes from Russia, it goes through Poland into Germany and, and the Czech Republic. And uh, the, uh, and, and as I said, there's uh, a lot of uh, this LPG is being consumed within Poland itself. So Poland is a transportation corridor, uh, and you know that's a little bit what what Merrick was referring to. There was, yes, sir. Is there any clean coal plant in operation in the world? That is there a that is effective? I 
I've seen one in right. Alaska, but the, this is in 2012. It will crash. It's been there a few years and it's yet to work. I mean, I think they never get it to work. Yeah, there are. Is there one working? There are. Yeah, there are a number of clean coal. The Department of Energy has been sponsoring uh, through loans and other activities, uh, clean coal activities. Some are better than others. The most recent, interesting one is uh, Southern Company, which is a big electric utility in the south in the United States, has a coal, big coal plant called Kemper. It uses uh, lignite, uh, so a lot of that available in places like Germany and Poland. Um, takes that, converts it to, uh, using steam, converts that into uh, hydrogen and, and methane burns that to make the electricity, captures the carbon dioxide uh, as a side stream. Now they're not getting all of the CO2, the carbon dioxide, but they're getting about two thirds of it. And they're taking that and pipe pumping it through a, you know, uh, a pipeline uh, to an old oil field. And they're using the carbon dioxide to get more oil out of the ground. So there are some places where that's working. The Japanese have some very sophisticated clean coal uh, plants. And as I said, I think China has been working on that as well. OK. okay. Last question. Last, last, last question. question. The, the uh, moderator is going to take the last question. And, uh, <laughs> you can leave us, but in, um, there is a real security concern in the Intermarium because of Russia's uh, dominance. And and it's cheap oil and gas. Everyone's looking for an alternative energy source. We've mentioned shale gas. There is also a great American invention, miniature reactors, which the current and previous administrations didn't like too much, thorium. Thorium, which are supposed yeah, the, the, to be Yeah, the thorium cycle. So, so the poles. Right. Uh, or a few conservative polls like the idea. I don't know about the current government, but um, this could also be not only for the polls, but anybody from Bulgaria to uh, Estonia could look at, at thorium and thorium uh, reactors, miniature. Apparently in California, there is a company that comes, yeah, that comes up with, uh, with um, a truck size reactor right. that can service an entire town. Right. Except we can't use it in the US. So there, there is a name for these things, uh, small modular reactors, SMRs. The idea is that they would be maybe 15 or 20% of the size of the typical uh, nuclear plant that's being built. Uh, that would have two advantages. It would have lower capital costs because it's smaller. Uh, maybe three. It would, um, it would be easier to site. Uh, and more uh, standardized uh, construction, and then third, uh, these things would have fuel cycles uh, that are safer. Uh, current uh, uranium fuel cycle um, power plants have to have all kinds of, of uh, regulations uh, to prevent the misuse of, of uh, nuclear material. And, uh, and getting away from that uh, and the thorium cycle would be one way to do that uh, would be pretty good. I also uh, saw uh, in my flight from Shanghai to San Francisco a, 
uh, half-hour film about the future of energy, uh, where they were uh, talking about the ITER, it's the international something, I mean, I'm, it's escaping me now, but people are looking at fusion. They're building uh, over in Europe a, uh, a gigantic magnet. Uh, it's gonna be about 10 years before the thing is, is ready, but they think that they're actually going to be able to, to make some progress on fusion. Uh, what the cost is going to be is uh, is you know like still unknown at this point, uh, but the idea of 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 continuing to develop uh, nuclear power in in either smaller, uh, better fuel cycles uh, for the typical fission reactors or possibly moving towards fusion, uh, which would also have um, a greater safety. Uh, associated with it is something that uh, Secretary Moniz, uh, the current Secretary of Energy, and Secretary uh, Stephen Chu, who uh, uh, was the secretary between 2009 and 2013, very, very interested in pursuing. And I think that this is something that's, uh, that everybody in the world is looking at, and it's, uh, I think, probably useful to do to complement uh, intermittent renewables with uh, base load generation that, that's available all the time. So uh, thank you, Jinkuya, and I uh, hope to see you again sometime.